Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. I'm Providence Journal sports editor Bill Corey. With me is Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch. And uh, stop me if you've heard this one before, Bill, but the uh, Red Sox are nine and a half games up in the uh, American League East. Hey, it seems like we do the podcast and uh, <laughs> that seems to be the margin just about every week. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. I mean, this is where they were after they swept the Yankees. Um, a couple of weekends ago, maybe three weekends ago, whatever it was, and they uh, really haven't uh, they haven't slowed down. They're coming off a two and two series uh, against the Cleveland Indians. Um, lost the first two, won the last two, uh, and I guess one of the um, uh, more encouraging signs coming out of that series was the performance of David Price uh, last night. Yeah, I think that's the headline. Yesterday afternoon, I'm sorry. Right, yesterday afternoon. They're, they're all night games. I mean, that's that's just how we were. Yeah, last night, you know, the night before, whatever. Um, yeah, it's David Price. And, and I think it has been David Price, his last six starts. Just the way he, he's managed to turn around his 2018 season here. Um, I think most importantly here, Bill, what you saw was David Price pitched very well against the team who they, they're going to see in October. Um, David Price pitched very well in a spot where they needed to split the series. They had lost the first two games. They managed to win the third. That's a spot where if you're a quote-unquote ace or a stopper, you rise up and you turn in a good outing. And eight scoreless innings is about as good as you can get. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I think uh, eyes are on Price a little bit uh, closer than, than usual now because of the uh, Chris Sale situation. You know, I, I tend to think Chris Sale will be okay. He'll come back uh, and take charge of the staff. But, you know, he's he's back on the DL again um, after having come off and pitching, pitched a good game. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, certainly the performance of Price and the other starters kind of uh, get magnified a little bit. But um, what do you make of the whole DL uh, situation with Chris uh, with Chris Sale? You know, I think in Sale's case, he, he's obviously on the, the DL with left shoulder inflammation. I, I think in Sale's case, I've seen two types of players. I've seen hurt players and I've seen injured players. Hurt players tend to be annoyed, like Chris Sale is. They're upset that they're not playing. Uh, and in his case, you've heard him say things like, I only get to play once a week, so it's annoying that I miss my one game a week. Uh, I don't like seeing other guys go out there and do my job, um, which is another thing he said. Alex Cora referred to the start he missed in the Yankees series. They went down 4 nothing uh, with Brian Johnson out there, and he said Chris Sale was beside himself in the dugout. Right. Uh, was so frustrated that he couldn't be out there. 
Um, and then there were injured players. And I think about someone like Carson Smith, who you know earlier in the year threw his glove in the dugout after a tough outing against the A's, uh, suffered a right shoulder subluxation, has since had surgery. Carson Smith met with the media the next day, and his face was ashen. Hmm. You know, he was pale white, yeah. uh, as white as the shirt you're wearing right now. He knew that something serious had happened to him and that he was probably looking at a long time out. Um, you know, I think back to Xander Bogarts when he was hit in the hand by Sir Anthony Dominguez and had a flashback to what happened in Tampa last year when he got hit in the wrist by a pitch and it sort of derailed his season. He was scared because he wasn't sure what was going to happen going forward. Um, you know, He was told the hand wasn't broken. He was told the same thing last year, and his numbers still fell off. So he was very concerned. In Sale's case, he's just more upset. And I think he's probably the most upset because he's missing out on what's a, an absolutely remarkable season by Boston. And when you're a player, you want to be a part of this sort of thing every single day. Sure, sure. And, you know, let, let's not forget the Red Sox still have this very comfortable lead in the division, and there's no rush to get Chris Sale back. And so if things aren't as, um, you know, as good as, as you want them to be, what's the harm in, in putting him on the DL? Even Absolutely. if Even if he could go out there and, and sort of, you know, fight through it, why, why do that now, you know? Um, they haven't exactly been losing ground without him. You need him to be full strength when, when October uh, rolls around. So I know that there was a lot of angst and hand-wringing about it. And I just sort of took it with a grain of salt because, you know, I think if, if the lead was a half a game or a game, I'm not so sure he'd be on the DL. No, they've said, uh, Sale has said, the organization has said that if this were October, it'd be something that he would grind through. He right. would try to pitch through. Uh, my one question, Bill, regarding this situation would be, if Sale misses a certain amount of time, you're going to build him up toward the end of the season. He's going to be able to give you a full outing in September and October. It's not going to be a question of whether or not he can go seven or eight innings. My question would be whether or not you're going to be able to bring him back on short rest. If hmm. you need him on three days rest for a game seven. Yeah, that's a good question. Or if you yeah. need him out of the bullpen right. in a game seven in relief. You've seen how these series go, and you know how they use these starters. Uh, you know, He made an illusion the other day on WEI uh, during the, uh, the Jimmy Fontelethon. He sort of said... You know, once you get to the postseason, the chains are off. Yeah, all hands the, on the deck. The rules right. are out the window. It's all hands on deck, and everyone is, is available to go out there. And he wants to be that type of guy for them. So, you know, maybe the only question you would have is the longer this goes on, whether or not he's going to be capable of bouncing back between starts or after a second start of a postseason series and able to go out there out of the bullpen. So what is the latest? What are we hearing about Chris Sale? Is he going to start to throw soon? Uh, he's going to travel with the team to Tampa. They have a three-game swing there. Um, hasn't started throwing yet, um, but he is going through you know all the strengthening exercises that he needs, going through full workouts off the field. Um, really, I just think they're exercising an abundance of caution. They know how valuable this guy is. Uh, I understand the inclination to be concerned, to think that this is a major thing. Um, you know, but they're not talking that way, and, and I don't necessarily think that they're lying at this point. Um, a couple of other things we should hit on here with the Cleveland series. Um, the first, to me anyway, is is the offense. Uh, you know, they split the series, but they uh, outscored the Indians twenty four to fifteen, I believe. Um, and uh, you know, this is an offense, Bill. That uh, you know, you don't need us to tell you this, but this is an offense that can explode really from one to nine on a given night. Uh, I mean, heck, even 
Jackie Bradley Jr. is hitting, uh, I want to say, over 300 here in the last two weeks. Um, so it, uh, it it would be rare for somebody to come in and just shut them down. No, it, it's definitely a, a resilient group. Um, you know, we talk about them being in a slump because they score eight runs in 35 innings. Uh, you know, that dated back to Saturday against Tampa. They did all their uh, just about all their scoring in the first inning mm. in that game. They got shut out the next day. And then the first two games against Cleveland, they lost 5-4 and 6-3. And you say, well, what's wrong? <laughs> Cleveland pitched pretty well the first two games. Um, you know, And this team is going to go into funks every once in a while. It's just the nature of offense. Early in the season, the three-game losing streak they had, the only one prior, uh, they got no hit by Sean Manaya in Oakland. They scored one run the next day. They lost 4-1. to one. And then they lost in Toronto 4-3. to three. They got walked off on by Curtis Granderson. Um, they had a stretch in June where they went two and three uh, against the Tigers, the White Sox, and the Orioles. Uh, the White Sox they lost a one nothing game. Sale got beat by Dylan Covey, uh, right hander. And then the last game of that stretch uh, was a twelve inning win in Baltimore, two nothing. Um, and you would say that they did what they had to do because they went two and three and, and they were struggling. Uh, it's the same thing now. You know, they they just had a few games where they didn't necessarily hit. And you just know that the breakout's coming around the corner. That's just how good these guys are. You go out the third game of the Cleveland series, you score 10 against Carlos Carrasco, who was outstanding in his previous eight starts. He had a one seven three ERA in his previous eight starts. Uh, and then against Adam Plutko on Thursday uh, and Adam Simber out of the bullpen, they, they roughed those two guys up in a six-run inning and, to win 7 nothing. And I, I just think, you know, with these guys, it's just a matter of consistent approach. You stay patient, and eventually they're going to hit the ball. Yeah, the uh, the Wednesday game against Carrasco, they fell uh, they fell into a I want to say an early two nothing hole two nothing, uh, and then I think they they scored a run right away, and then they tied it not too long after, and then it was just off to the races. Bogarts had that huge game with two bombs, and right, um, you know, just, it, it just seems infectious. Once somebody starts hitting, they all sort of chip in, and uh, you know, they they uh, fought themselves uh, back into a, a series split. No, it's definitely uh, an embarrassment of riches in their lineup. They they have so many options. Uh, you know, starting at the top with Mookie Betts. Uh, you know, Andrew Benintendi has a huge hit on Wednesday, a, a three run double uh, to clear the bases. Uh, you know, JD Martinez can go deep at any time off any one. Um, and then you get down to the bottom of the order, and, and Jackie Bradley Jr. You know, quietly has his OPS up around seven hundred for the season. Uh, he was down in the low sixes at one point. Uh, I got him as low as 616 on July 1st. He's all the way up to 696, which means the batting average isn't there, but there are some extra base hits there. Uh, you know, he's pushing 20, let's see, 25 doubles, uh, 11 home runs. Um, you know, Having that out of your nine spot and, and having that with a guy who can run as well, it's not necessarily the worst thing. And, and then you factor in the defense that he plays, and you know it's acceptable to have him in the lineup. All, all the hand-wringing about how they should move on from Jackie Bradley and it's not working anymore. Alex Cora just took a very patient approach and said, we're going to let this play out. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he's hitting the ball hard. Some balls will drop in. And I, I just think that that approach... You know, Cora as a position player knows that you're going to go through some peaks and valleys, and I think just that approach team wide has really benefited them, and I think you're seeing that at the plate, especially. Right, and and you know, realistically, that they've uh, they've been able to do that because they've gotten so many contributions from from elsewhere in the lineup That's that right. you know, typically your center fielder is one of the uh, uh, power hitting guys, but uh, you know, Jackie's batting ninth, and you know, was hitting 
at or below 200 for a good part of the year. But, you know, it seems weird, but it's not like they really missed the bat, you know. Um, yeah. You had, especially when you have two guys who are hitting uh, as well as um, Martinez and Betts uh, are. Which brings me to my next point, Bill. Yes. <laughs> as I was at the game on, on Wednesday night, I heard a lot of MVP chants in the crowd every time Mookie Betts came up. Yeah. Uh, so what's your take on that? I mean, I think it's it's obviously either Mookie Betts or J.D. Martinez from a Red Sox standpoint. I think that the traditional way of thinking is, well, Mookie plays the outfield, plays great defense, so he gets the nod. But man, J.D. Martinez really kind of remade this lineup this year, didn't he? David Price had an interesting take on that um, the other day. He, he said J.D. Martinez is the MVP of our team and Mookie Betts is the MVP of the league. Wow. And I think what he was getting at was what Martinez has done for the other hitters in the lineup in terms of, you know, and, and it's been much maligned in some quarters, and I don't know why. It's just the nature of the market. People just feel the need to make fun of other people. I don't really know why. Um, you know, we, we, never, we never do that on the Twin Bills podcast. Well, we, you know, we try not to. At we least not to, when we're on the actual air. No, so. no, no, no. We try, to, we try to keep it professional here. Right. And, you know, I think Martinez walking around with an iPad and, and with the composition book and just his, you know, his knowledge of, of other pitchers and his willingness to share that with other players on his team or to share his observations about their swings if they ask him mm. for it. Uh, you know, that's some people have looked and said, oh, there's J.D. and his iPad again. You know, isn't that cute? <laughs> He's given them significant value in, in that way. And I, I just think, you know, he, he is... He's willing to sit there and talk hitting for hours and hours and hours and his approach and what he thinks about on his swing and what he thinks about in certain counts. And you have to remember that this is what these guys do for a job. They're professionals. And if you really care about your craft, you're going to be willing to be in a conversation like that with someone like Martinez, who's clearly done his homework and studied and has put it into practice on the field. Um, And in Betts' case, uh, you just look at the, the talent. The way that he's able to impact the game at the plate, on defense, on the bases, a true five-tool player, and a guy who, you know, right now, if you look at fan graphs, which I have in front of me right now, um, you look at wins above replacement, which is you know considered by a lot of people to be the truest representation of value. The good old war stat. War. Uh, Jose Ramirez for the Indians is first in war. He's mm-hmm. at 8.2. Uh, Mookie Betts is second, 7.7. Mike Trout is third. Francisco Lindor is fourth. Matt Chapman, the excellent third baseman for the A's, is fifth. And J.D. Martinez is sixth. And J.D. Martinez is sixth because he's a designated hitter. Mm. And he doesn't give you any value on defense. The, the sparing days where he does play in the outfield, he's an average outfielder. Yeah, he's serviceable. Right. right. He's a serviceable right fielder. Betts gets a big boost because he's one of the best outfielders in baseball. Uh, in terms of war, in terms of just about any metric you want to look at. Right. Um, you know, and if you're a voter, and I know there are some MVP voters out there who are going to strictly look at war because they're going to say wins above replacement is the truest definition mm. of value. That sort of encompasses all the categories. Right. This yeah. is how much better you are than another guy who would be in your position. A lot of those folks right now would just vote for Jose Ramirez because mm. he's first on this he's list. On, yeah. You know, and you can justify that. You could say Jose Ramirez should be the MVP because he's playing for Cleveland. They're a very good team. They're going to be in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. He's had a wonderful season. Where I sort of differ with some people is when they want to vote for Mike Trout, and Mike Trout is the best player in baseball, in my mind. I I want to make that very clear. Mm -hmm. I think he's the best. But people want to vote for Mike Trout when he's on a fourth or fifth place team. Now, I I have a good... 
Very healthy debate with a good buddy of mine, Hev, if you're listening. We'll probably have this debate later on on a Friday night because I'm off. Um, Hev will get on me all the time and he'll say, how can you not vote for Trout? He's the best player. He leads in war. You're penalizing him because he's on a bad team. Right, right. Yes, I am. <laughs> right. That's not fair. Yeah. I understand that's not fair. Yeah. But I want the MVP to come from a winner. I, I don't see, personally, I don't see the value in having a great player Mike Trout, like Mike Trout if you're going to finish 10 games under 500. So without him, you would have been 20 games right. under 500. I, you just can't motivate me to care about that player on that team. You know, now in two years when Mike Trout's contract is up and he signs with the Yankees and has a war of twenty five or whatever <laughs> right. it might be, different deal because the Yankees Trout, are in first place. Then Mike right. Trout can be the MVP every single year. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but in this case, I would be more inclined to go with the Ramirez, Betts, Lindor, Chapman, Martinez faction of right. that upper part of the right. list. Yeah, from a Red Sox standpoint, you know, if if you just want to uh, focus on those two guys, it's a tough call. If if uh, we were voting, we don't have MVP votes, but um, you know, Betts has been fantastic, and he's you know, as you mentioned, a great outfielder. But you know, I think the uh, the presence of Martinez really has affected this team in ways nobody could have ever predicted. Not only is he a great hitter and having a great year. But um, he seems to have this great presence about him where he's sort of a quiet leader. I mean, he's not out there, rah, rah, but, you know, he certainly shows emotion when he does well. And, um, you know, we've heard stories of people, of other guys going to him and, and him giving it, hitting advice. And, uh, you know, he reminds me of like the, the Kurt Schilling of hitters where he walks around with all that, all those notes and, mm. you know. Yes, that's a good comparison. He actually. studies uh, all the pitchers and he, you know. Um, you know, has a so quote unquote a book on them. So, right. um, you know, yes, he he is a DH and he doesn't play play um, play play the field. But boy, I got to tell you, I don't think the Red Sox would be near where they are without without JD Martinez on this team. No, him hitting behind Betts, Benintendi, and at times Mitch Moreland. There's no question that has an effect on those three guys in terms of what pitches they see. Uh, you know, pitchers are, are reluctant to walk them in front of J.D. Martinez. Right. They don't want to pitch to him with men on base. Uh, and just look at where the Red Sox were in home runs last year. They were last in the American League, which, you know, for Red Sox fans, longtime Red Sox fans, Bill, I know you are. I, mm-hmm. I am too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unthinkable that Boston would finish last in the AL. Right. If anything, runs. they could always hit home runs. They couldn't pitch, but they could always hit couldn't home runs. Couldn't pitch and couldn't run. Right, right. But they would hit the ball out of the ballpark. Yeah. Uh, you know, this year they're third. They're behind the Yankees and the Indians, and right. they've already hit more home runs this year by seven or eight, I think, than they did all of last year. Right. With 30-odd games left. And I look at J.D. Martinez more like I looked at Manny Ramirez. I mean, yes, he's a power hitter, sure, but he's just a great hitter. He can hit the ball just about anywhere in that park. Alex Cora made that comparison in spring training, and he brings that up now occasionally when we talk and when he said it in spring training it seemed silly because we all saw Manny and we knew how good of a hitter you know we were like come on and that's the illusion Cora makes he said I brought up Manny Ramirez in spring training and some of you guys laughed (laughs) and said come on Alex Manny Ramirez is the best right-handed hitter any of us have seen he would roll out of bed and hit right that was the old saying you know and and what made Ramirez different and I think it's what makes Martinez different two things first they can hit for great average while slugging like this. Right. The second thing, and I think Martinez has shown this, and if you look at his spray charts, if you pull them up anywhere, is the ability to hit the ball to all fields. Uh, I think through Martinez has 38 home runs now. I, th- I th- want to say through his first 30, 
he had 10 to left, 10 to center, and 10 to right. <laughs> what are you supposed to do right. if you're a pitcher? Mookie Betts, is a, if he's going to hit the ball out of the ballpark, it's going to be left field. Right. He's a pull power guy, and he's got plenty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing to watch him hit the ball that far out of that little body. It's just right. it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, he's got a great swing, but you're right. It's, it's mostly to either left center or left. That's right. It's pull side. Yep. In Martinez's case, he'll just spray the ball into the bullpen. At Fenway, yep. you know, there's no field on the road that he can't hit it out. He's hit opposite field home runs uh, in Houston. I remember, I think it was off Garrett Cole actually in mm-hmm. a Saturday game. Uh, you know, he's homered to right off Dylan Patances at Yankee Stadium, which is the easier field to him for him to hit it out mm-hmm. in Yankee Stadium. It's a lot shorter out there. Um, you know, but there is no park that can contain this guy, and that's in all directions. Yeah. It's just it's phenomenal to watch his approach. Um, you know, and just watch him let the ball get so deep, unleash that swing, and just crush it to right center field. It's really it's it's an amazing thing the way that he's able to you know just sort of say so calm, so relaxed at the plate, and then just uncoil and hit the ball so hard consistently. Yeah, no, he really is. A, he's a pleasure to watch. Um, so before we get too far away from this Cleveland series, I do want to just uh, touch upon the bullpens a little bit. Sure, uh, we haven't seen. Craig Kimbrell in in a week <laughs> or more. Yeah, I think, right? I think uh, the last time he worked was Saturday against Tampa. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but um, the Cleveland bullpen to me was uh, was scary. Now the the back end of that bullpen maybe not so much, but boy, when you start rolling out Brad Hand and Andrew Miller uh, in those middle innings. Um, you know they really can't shorten the game, and, and I just found a contrast there with the Red Sox bullpen because it seems like Alex Cora is still searching a little bit for those middle inning, the middle innings guys. Yeah, I think in Cleveland's case, you know, you refer to Cody Allen obviously on the back end. Yeah. I'm not a believer. He had a very shaky ninth inning on Monday night. Uh, came in to mop up on Thursday and wasn't great either. Um, you know, was was in trouble from the start. He threw more than 20 pitches. It, you know, it wasn't a very impressive outing. I I think that. This is Terry Francona doing a little bit of man management here. Cody Allen was his closer when they reached the World Series in 2016, uh, losing to the Cubs in seven games. Cody Allen was his closer last year, too. When you trade for a guy like Brad Hand, if you just thrust him immediately into that role, I'm sure Francona is thinking, what's this going to do to the clubhouse? You know, is this going to ma- is this going to send the message that everyone is expendable? Uh, is Cody Allen a popular guy in there? I'm not sure, but to sort of unseat him with someone who you trade for, uh, that's not necessarily always seen as a popular move. Um, now, I do think that Hand will be their closer for the future. He's under team control through 2020. He has a team option f- through 2021, and I think he was the best guy on the market in my mind mm-hmm. because of that—a uh, left-hander with power stuff. Um, you know, who can get other left-handers out. You don't need to go to a specialist. In any case, he can match up with them. Um, I also think that Brad Hand wasn't available to the Red Sox. I don't think they had what it took to get him back. They didn't, they didn't have the prospects. No, the the deal there uh, was Hand and Adam Sim, uh, Adam Simber, the submarining right-hander, uh, came from San Diego. Cleveland sent San Diego Francisco, Francisco Mejia, who is the number 21 prospect in all of baseball. He's the number one catching prospect in baseball. Triple uh, A this year, he's hitting 288 with a 782 OPS, 11 home runs and 27 doubles. And his arm is graded by scouts as a 70 on a 20 to 80 scale. So not only can he hit his weight, 
uh, but he can also throw behind the plate. A dual threat catcher, which you don't see very much anymore. Right. Most guys can do one of the two. Mm-hmm. They're either very defensively good, like Sandy Leone, or they have offensive upside, like Blake Swihart. You're essentially marrying the two together, and you get Francisco Mejia. Huge value for a team. Um, the Red Sox don't have a prospect like that. Right. They just don't. They, they don't have anyone close to the top 20 uh, on any list no matter where you look, whether it's MLB.com, uh, you know, baseball reference, any, anywhere else. Um, so Cleveland had the ammunition to make a deal like that, and it could benefit them you know, going into October. I, I think in Boston's case, you're looking at Kimbrell at the back end. Matt Barnes is going to set him up. And as we've talked about for a little while, the seventh inning, I think – is leaning towards Ryan Brazier. Brazier, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. I, I think you're. Uh, I think that Alex Cora is is uh, building some trust in in, in Brazier. Um, but uh, we, we, you know, again, we didn't see Kimbrel because the games didn't lend themselves to that uh, uh, right. against Cleveland. Um, <clears throat> so as I was I was looking at the standings <clears throat> this morning, uh, Bill, and if my um, reading of it is correct, we, we would see if the season ended today and it won't but uh, we would see a wild card game between the Yankees and the surging Oakland A's mm. uh, with the divisions still going to the Red Sox the Indians and the Astros what do you make of the Oakland A's uh, sort of coming to the fore here and right now they are I believe four games ahead of um, uh, four games ahead of Seattle for the wild card correct uh, you know in Oakland's case I, I know they won four out of six against Boston very early in the year. Two in Oakland and two in Boston. Right. Uh, and after the third game at Fenway Park, remember vividly, Alex Cora in the post game said, "Get those guys out of here. <laughs> I don't want to see them anymore because they're tough." They may, they may see him again. He said they, you know, they have great at bats. They're very patient at the plate. They grind it out. Um, and he saw something in their pitching staff at that time, which has only been strengthened since. Uh, Sean Manias had a good year. He obviously no-hit Boston early on. Yeah. He's a good left-hander. Uh, you know, Trevor Cahill looks healthy. He's had a decent track record. Um, had a very good outing the other day. I think he allowed one hit in seven innings. Um, you know, and looks like he sort of recaptured maybe a little bit of something they yeah. had before. Mm-hmm. Specifically, when he was with the Diamondbacks, he, he was a big prospect then. Uh, they dealt for Mike Fires after the uh, waiver trade deadline, oh, that's right? Yep. And he had an excellent outing, his first outing with Oakland. Uh, you know, right-handed starter who can be tough because he's got sort of a you know, sort of a crossfire delivery. And if you're a right-handed hitter, it's not necessarily comfortable. The ball looks like it's kind of coming from behind your ear, which you know isn't really great. Um, you know, but Oakland just, they have talented, young position players. They're probably a little bit ahead of their time in terms of some of the guys who they thought to develop. Matt Chapman is a guy who they've been very high on for a long time. Chris Davis has hit his way into the MVP discussion. Uh, hit his 39th home run last night, which gives him the league lead. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, and another guy who's been very consistent in their offense is Jed Lowry, who... Old we, friend Jed Lowry, uh, who right? we saw in Boston uh, in the training room more than on the field, unfortunately. Yeah. When he's been able to get out there, though, over the course of his career, you look at him, he's in his early 30s now, which seems hard to believe. Right. Um, but when he's been out there especially over the last two or three years where he's been relatively injury-free. It's a very productive major league hitter, and they just have guys like that sort of up and down their lineup who are just very pesky, professional at bats, and they're just not a very comfortable team to play against. And I I think they're using that 
to their advantage right now. They've made a huge run, made up a ton of ground on the Astros. Yep. And it's going to be really interesting to see what shakes out. you got four teams for three spots, Houston, Oakland, Seattle, and the Yankees. And those four teams are going to have to empty the tank going into September. They're, they're, it's not going to be easy for any of them. Sure. Sure, and uh, if you're a Red Sox fan, I think you're thankful that if you do face the A's, it won't be in a one-game playoff because those games scare you when, when you're up against a team. I mean, it could, you know, anything could happen in one game. It, Seattle would probably be the team I'd be most concerned about uh, because you'd probably have to face James Paxton. Yeah, uh, I know he's been on the DL here with a, a you know a back problem, uh, but he'll be back. Uh, you know, and he'll be up to full speed by the end of September. You're talking a power left-handed guy who can run his fastball into the upper 90s, type of guy who you know can just erase you for one game. And he goes out there, he gives up three hits, he strikes out 11, and you're out of the playoffs. And you know that is the value of winning the division and the danger of being in that wild card game. Sure, sure. Uh, so before we wrap up here, um, boy, time flies when you when you're talking Red Sox, isn't it? Yeah, we're really, we're we, 27 minutes in here. You know, we barely gave David Price his due too at the start. Well, go ahead. Isn't I that, mean, <laughs> sort of a, isn't that sort of appropriate though? Because well, it, he whines so much, no, you know. But it, so, it, but you know, to that point, it feels like most folks around here only want to talk about David Price when he's bad. Well, that's true. Yeah, it's it's more fun when he's bad, right? Well, right. They just want to kick him when he's down. Yeah. Um, you know, they take particular glee in the fact that he sort of has that hangdog look and, you know, the soft voice and, you know, is sort of, uh, you know, I, I guess he gets into some self-flagellation a little bit. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, some of it's, it's brought on by, by, uh, by his own self. But, uh, no, you, I, I mean, look. Aside from those those uh, bad outings against the Yankees, right? Uh, he has um, he's certainly been a solid starter for most of the year, and as of late, he's been very very good. Yeah, his last six starts a one oh nine ERA, uh, forty strikeouts and forty one in the third innings. Only one home run allowed in that stretch, which mm-hmm. you know was something that that started in the Bronx against the Yankees where he gave up five. You're thinking this could derail his whole season. Yeah. The adjustments that he's made, specifically moving over to the left side of the rubber, uh, you know, have changed his angles coming into the plate. On his cut fastball, on his two-seamer, uh, on his change-up. You know, he, he has found something, and I, I appreciate that in a guy who is 10 or 11 years in, who has the track record that he has. He's won a Cy Young Award. He's making $217 million. Theoretically, he doesn't need to work at it. He, he could just go out there, take the ball, pitch to a four ERA, go home to his wife and his son and call it a and day. And his dog. You know, and, and have a very nice life for mm-hmm. himself. Um, but he's definitely put in the work, and, and you appreciate that about him as a professional. Uh, the adjustments that he's made, his willingness to make those adjustments, and the fact that he's been able to take them out to the mound with him over these last six outings. Well, I mean, regardless, uh, if you if you love him or hate him, the the bottom line is you're going to need David Price Absolutely. in the playoffs. I mean, that even even with a right. even with a healthy Chris Sale, you're going to need a a number two, or you know, he may be the number one. Who knows? But um, you know, the Red Sox. I don't think I'm going to be winning a World Series without uh, David Price uh, contributing on some level. So, so there. Are you happy? We've given him his due there. I am now. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, so a couple of other quick things. First is that the uh, 2019 Red Sox schedule was uh, unveiled. Yes. This week, and uh, it looks like you'll be spending some time in the Great Northwest um, come next March. Uh, quite a quite a road trip to open up the se- the, the season next year. Woof! You're not kidding. Yeah. Eleven straight games. Uh, opening March 28th in Seattle, four with the Mariners, four with Oakland, 
And then your first interleague action of the season, right away, three at Arizona. Uh, 11 games in 11 days. That's yeah. just, you know, talk about getting punched in the face right yeah. out of the blocks. That's yeah. a tough one. Yeah. And then you have a day off, and then you have the home opener on a Tuesday. April 9th, I think it is. Against Toronto? Right? Against Toronto, right. Yep. right. So, uh, yeah, so it'll be a while. Well, you know, considering what our uh, what our weather has been like in uh, March and April around here, you know, the, the later you can start at home, the better. You know, and the players have said, I've asked some players this this year, uh, I remember having this discussion with uh, Kevin Bowles, the Paw Sox manager, mm-hmm. about road trips to start the year as a Northeast club. And I said, Kevin, would you mind... You know, going to Gwinnett and to Charlotte and to Durham and whatever else, if they put you on the road for, let's say, 20 games to start the year and you didn't open up at home until like April 23rd, would you mind that? And he said, absolutely not. I'd live out of a suitcase for three weeks if it meant that we were warm and that we came back and the weather was actually manageable in New England. So I was a little surprised by that because being on the road and being in a hotel it's fine for a week or so. And then after that, it just starts to be a little bit of a grind. You sort of wake up. You forget what city you're in. You're on the bus or the plane the whole time. Right. Um, but their sort of overall goal is to be comfortable. And if you're playing games in Arizona in April, that's ideal. Nothing wrong with that. a lot better than playing at Fenway Park, for sure. A couple of other notes um, that I that jumped out to me was uh, the Dodgers are coming to town next year, which is which is neat. Yep. And the Giants are also coming to town uh, in September of next year. So a couple of West Coast sort of classic old school teams uh, coming to Fenway Park. So and I know there's I know there's Giants and Dodgers fans in the area too. So uh, I'm sure we'll see some of those jerseys at Fenway. Yeah, your uh, your interleague series next year, the Red Sox will be playing the NL West. Uh, this year they played the NL East. Right. Uh, you know, your road opponents will be Arizona, San Diego, two with Colorado, and then two with the Phillies, who they've identified as Boston's sort of regional that's rival. That's the regional rival, there. right, right. Um, you know, and I actually think that's a, it's a good trip. Uh, it's a great ballpark in Philadelphia. It's good when the Phillies are good, and the Phillies are good now. And they so, are, yeah, and, and yeah. they're young, so they're yeah. set up to be good for a little while. I actually think that they'll probably be, along with Atlanta, the, the two co-favorites in the NL East, mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future here. Yeah. Uh, your interleague home. So, sorry, New York Mets fans. Uh, yeah, if there are any of you left, I mean, really, we feel sorry for you guys. Uh, although after 86, I don't really feel sorry. Right, for no, you. we'll I never really feel don't. sorry for them no. uh, fully, but yeah. Uh, your, your interleague home opponents next year. Or the Rockies again, the Dodgers, as you said, who are here right out of the All Star break in mm-hmm. July, uh, the Phillies, and then the Giants, who are later in the season. And you know, like you said, and I think you make a good point. Uh, the largest road crowd I think I saw at Fenway to this point this year was when the Phillies were here for two games. Mm-hmm. Their fans travel very well. Sure, you know, you've been to Patriots games. You've seen what the Eagle fans do just about anywhere they go. Right, uh, it's a very passionate group and I, I think uh, you know just the chance to get to go to a new city and maybe go to a new ballpark right. uh, you know I would be excited to go to Colorado next year I've never been to Coors Field I hear it's an absolutely beautiful place mm-hmm. uh, I have been to San Diego and Petco Park which is a gem uh, you know right downtown next to the Gaslamp Quarter nice restaurants uh, you know nightclubs establishments that you can hit up before, the team is not that the good. Game. The team isn't good, <laughs> but it's a wonderful road trip to make. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that's probably the exciting part about interleague plays. You're going to get Clayton Kershaw in Fenway Park yeah. next year. Yeah. He might pitch here. You're going to get Cody Bellinger here. Uh, that was the whole intention of interleague play at the start was to get those superstars who you don't necessarily see outside of the All Star game. 
get them into your park and get to watch them play. And I, I think you know it's always nice when you have sort of these fresh opponents coming in and you get to look at next year's schedule and sure. see who they who they are and who they'll be here. Yeah, no, I, you know I think for, uh, to some degree the shine has come off interleague play because we've been doing it now for so long. But you're right. Every now and then you get these great matchups and you get pitchers that you wouldn't normally see, uh, you know, playing it at Fenway, and then and that's and that's still special. You know, it's not so special if you're playing you know last place National League team that can't hit. But uh, you're right. You know, you bring Clayton Kershaw here, and and it's a, it's a different deal. Yeah, that's the nature of 162 games. Sure. Not all of them are going to be sexy, but when you end up with four games against Cleveland and you're both leading the division, that makes it worthwhile. Sure. Those are the series that you're not actually earning your money. You're, you're just sort of you know out there enjoying your job, right. watching right. a game like that. Uh, so before we wrap things up here, I would be remiss, or we would be remiss, if we don't uh, give a little shout-out here to our, our uh, brethren or colleagues in the media up at WEEI and their uh, 17th. Nesson as well. And Nesson, yep. that's right. Uh, their 17th annual uh, Jimmy Fund Telethon, which has uh, now raised, I believe, over $50 million total, yeah. uh, which is which is just fantastic. Yeah, 17th year that they were doing it. Uh, it was on Tuesday and Wednesday, over 48 hours. The simulcast was on the radio and on TV. Uh, raised $4.4 million this year, a little north of that, which is a second highest total they've ever had. Crossed the uh, $50 million total over the 17 years. Uh, and the stories of these kids, and if you, you get a chance, uh, there was a story on The Athletic by Chad Jennings mm-hmm. uh, you know, that had an oral history of the, the Jimmy Fund telethon. It's a long read. It's probably about 15, 20 minutes. But if you get a chance and you're on lunch break or you know, you're at home coming home from work or anything like that, give it a read. Because the, the stories of these kids, the nurses involved... The personalities involved, whether they be media, former players, former managers, uh, and what this does to touch them, uh, touch their hearts, touch their minds, it, it's just so powerful. And, and I think what makes it you know, so memorable is the fact that you see these kids, you know they're sick, you get them on the radio and TV and it's like nothing ever happened. Yeah. They have the best outlook, the best perspective, uh, they're the strongest people involved the adults are losing it you sure. can see they're starting to tear up and you know having trouble composing themselves and the kids are just so remarkable it's 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 something that i marvel at every single year and i really hope we live to see the day where they don't have to have this event no it really it's a testament really to the, to the uh, to the doctors and nurses um, and really all the researchers that have helped uh, treat these kids and develop better ways of fighting cancer you know the other thing about it too is it's it's just so relatable to all of us because we all have relatives friends you know family members who have dealt with cancer, perhaps died from uh, from a cancer. So, it's something that all of us have um, have sort of a, a personal connection with. Yeah, no question about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, my mom's a cancer survivor. God bless her. Uh, my grandmother, before she passed away, she was a cancer survivor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you're, you're right. Sadly, it's it's something that hits all of us. And you know, you watch the people who battle every single day, just hoping to be healthy again right. and be normal again. And you know, any dollars that you give, whether it be, you know, going to the kids or to their families or to those clinical trials that can find a cure for this awful disease, I'm sure they were more than appreciated by EEI, by 
uh, Ness and, and by Dana-Farber. Sure, sure. And, you know, uh, being in Rhode Island here, obviously, we're close enough that we can benefit from from uh, the services of Dana-Farber. There's uh, no plenty question. of people who... who uh, come up from Rhode Island to uh, to get services up there. So it's not some far away place that uh, people don't have a connection to. That's right. Uh, so, Bill, with that, let's wrap up this week's Twin Bills podcast. By my count, there are 33 games left in the regular season schedule. Uh, so we will see what happens here over the next few weeks. And we will do this again a week from now. Thanks again, Bill. Thanks, Bill.